It is July 19th, 2021. This is Rook. Well, he is an Iranian-British broadcaster who is undoubtedly one of the most recognizable faces on Persian TV, as well as his work in radio. Behzad Bulur has been a presenter and producer with BBC Persian for over 31 years. He's an award-winning artist, fashion designer, and documentarian who has a unique style that you just cannot miss. Behzad has made it his mission as a media personality to promote Persian culture and all varieties of music, and he joins us today for his first-ever long-form interview in English. Behzad Bulur, coming up from London. Plus, we have your Letters of the Week. This is Conversations from, to, and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 128 of Rook. Hope you are keeping well. Wherever you're tuning in from around the world, Salam Dustan Aziz. Omivar Hastam Kikhub Vabmizun Hastin. Okay. All right? Okay. 128 episodes later, you finally learned. <laughs> no, it's Bashin is the right <laughs> I learned that I want to tease Shia. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada, where we're back and open for business in Toronto. You've been to your gym, yes. our gym. Oh, life is good again. No excuses anymore. <laughs> no excuses. You can't lean on the, the gym is an open excuse well, anymore. Know. Yeah, but I'm looking forward to I'm going to go out tomorrow. I'm going to, uh, I swear, I'm coming. All I'm right, right, I'll look out for you. The, I'm just, uh, the quarantine has been there. What do you call it? The lockdown mm-hmm. has been, I mean, I think the rest of the world is already open. <laughs> uh, I, I was in Washington, D.C. over the weekend. I'll tell you a little bit about it in a second, but there's people everywhere running around with no masks Whoa. inside. It was so weird for me. I felt like such a closeted Canadian. I was like, <laughs> is this allowed? <laughs> you know, and then I was going to put on a mask at one point and people were like counseling me. Yeah. No, don't do that. They'll think you're a pariah. It's you not know, the cool thing to it's do. It's not the cool there. thing to do. None of the cool kids are doing it. We're coming to you from rookmedia.com. That's uh, where you can link to all of our platforms. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We are on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and CastBox. If you like visuals with Rook uh, and you want to see us on our social media platforms, switch over to YouTube or Instagram right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, check out Rook Media on Telegram. Subscribe to us there. Behzad Bulur coming up from London in just a few minutes, Shai John. Yes. I've been looking forward to this. A most idiosyncratic gentleman he is in style, in substance, in opinion. He's a unique dude, you know. Yes. No one's replicating uh, Behzad Bulur anytime soon. People will know him from Kook, mm-hmm. his show Kook, or uh, Bulur Ben Afsh, yes. uh, or his many documentaries. This is his first ever 
uh, comprehensive, long-form interview in English, and I'm quite honored that he's uh, agreed to do that. He's been a broadcaster for many years, so we'll get into all that is the world of Behzad Balur in just a few moments. Hello, the fabulous Keon. Hi, Jean. Hello, Groovy Shia. Hi, Aziz. And hello, Captain Reza. Hello, sir. Captain Reza looking like he's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, are you cast <laughs> as Tom Selleck in a 1980s? Oh uh, you're, you're, you've got your shirt open to your navel. <laughs> I forgot about it. <laughs> He's living la vida loca over there. <laughs> he is. There's somewhere between Ricky Martin and Burt Reynolds. Uh, <laughs> Ricky uh, Martin and Burt Reynolds. He's found a spot oh of, uh, you need some chains, dude. You know, it can be a Persian uh player with that kind of Are you of trying life. to say I look like a 70s porn star? Is that what you're trying to say? I didn't need to say that. It was clear that what I was saying. Both right. of them. They both look like the Bee Gees today with the open shirts. Settle and down. <laughs> That's a compliment. Yeah. Calling them the Bee Gees is a compliment. I'm oh, a big Bee Gees fan. 80s God. porn star yeah. it is. Uh, how are you, Captain Reza? I'm great. How are you, sir? I'm uh, I'm good. I was uh, I just got back. I was at a in Washington D.C. just uh, yeah. for a couple of days. We I did a private event there. It was a Persian event, and Rana Mansour was there. Yeah. It was mm. lovely to see her. But um, I have to say, you know, I was looking, so looking forward to traveling for the first time. Yeah. And I hadn't left the country in a year and a half, right? right? I've been f- observing the COVID. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people have, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, some of these <laughs> people running back yeah. and forth to <laughs> Iran and, you know, uh, I mean, I have, I've tried to be, you know, good about this and we've been yeah. doing Rook and I don't want to have to mm-hmm. quarantine. So now that they lifted the, the obligation of mandatory quarantine, if you're double vaxxed, mm-hmm. which I am, right. I thought, okay, I can go to the state for this little gig on for the weekend, you know? So for 48 hours though, I mean, first of all, it means nothing to be double vaxxed. Nothing, Keon. What do you mean? Well, I mean, I was gone for two days. Okay. Ask me how many COVID tests I had to do. How many COVID tests? I mean, I am probably the most, I am the safest, I'm the most tested. President Biden doesn't get (laughs) tested as much as after he visits a hospital. He doesn't have to be tested as much as me. I was, because I had to be tested before I, in order to enter the United States. Right. Right. So I had to take a special test in Canada on Friday. To board the plane. To get on the plane. Okay. Right. To go. I thought it would mean something. I'm double vaccinated. Mm-hmm. It means nothing. No, nothing. no one asks about that. Where's your test that you've paid money for, by the way? Yeah. Right? It's, it's all a scam. So then I go in. What's the first thing I have to do in D.C.? Get a test so mm. I can come back because oh. I need to get the results. <laughs> so that's twice that you had to get and tested? And then when you come back, you have to get tested here again. What did Last what? night. For two days only. Well, you'd think that this is the first test. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the, <laughs> here's the funny thing. The first, the tests are supposed to be you're supposed to get the test within 72 hours, right? Yeah. Like or you when you when you fly. Yeah. So the first test still counted for when I was flying back, but they wouldn't count that of course. Oh Has to be the another test that you paid for in America. But wait a minute, when you entered Canada, you had to take another one, so you took three tests. Three tests in 2 days, yeah. God forbid you have to go to a few countries. That's yeah. a lot of testing. I mean, but you know, it's probably a good thing because I think everywhere I went was a super spreader down there. <laughs> These Americans, I'm telling you. And the Persian Americans even worse. Oh, Running man. around, you know, dancing, baba Karam, sweating. <laughs> I mean, no uh, masks. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one was wearing masks. Wow. Nobody. I didn't see any. Nowhere. That's you know, lovely. we haven't had this happen in Toronto yet. I know there's places mm-hmm. in the world where they've sort of said, okay, if you're vaccinated, you can take the masks off right. inside. But that has generalized to everybody taking the masks off, I think. Because um, 
my cousin's down there and he was saying because i was saying wow i went to this restaurant this bar and nobody was wearing a mask and he said yeah if you're wearing a mask it means you're telegraphing that you're not vaccinated oh so I, so then i didn't want to wear a mask you know i was <laughs> like well, i'm double vaccinated i thought it meant something i got Pfizer. <laughs> shame yeah. shame shame so anyway, but it was it was really nice to visit the states, and uh, it's so fun to travel again. I mean, mm. I I realized that I hadn't even I didn't know where my suitcase was. Like I, <laughs> all the things that had, are so yeah. normal when you're traveling yeah, all the time, yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten. <laughs> you know, strange. Yeah. yeah. How's Rana? Uh, Rana, I don't know, but Rana was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Rana. This guy How's Rana? Rana. <laughs> That's what kind of an accent is that? You, you mean Rana? Rana. Rana? Oh Rana. my God! Rana. You guys are kidding. Rana, yes, Mansour, Rana. Is that what you're trying to say? She's Rana. Is Rana. The, Rana. What did I say? Rana is oh, the I way you say it in, in Kuwait. <laughs> where Jean? How was Rana? Jean. <laughs> Uh, she Never was great. Yeah? She was great. Yeah, she's lovely. Yeah, it was a nice. It was fun getting to see her. I saw a bunch of people down there. Actually, it was nice to be in. Uh, like I say, it was good to be in DC for a couple of days. Uh, hey, listen, a shout out to for this episode, Katy Kavandi and Katy Kavandi Immigration Services for making this edition of Rook possible. This is a full service immigration firm that offers all inland and overseas immigration services, including temporary visas, permanent visas, PR extensions. Citizenship applications, Shia. Okay. Uh, Kathy and her team are available to inform and assist you as their client throughout the whole immigration process. If you want to come to Canada or you're here and you need support, you, you need an immigration counselor, Kathy is your person. You can find her at kathykovandy.ca. We are linking to that on our screen and on the description of today's episode, uh, kathykovandy.ca. She also mentioned she uh, makes it a priority to give back to the community. We appreciate her support for doing that and help uh, in making this episode of Rook possible. Hey, in the coming days on Rook, Dr. Sheila Nazarian mm-hmm. or Nazarian. That's going to be interesting. So last night was the Daytime Emmy Awards. Yeah. And her show, her Netflix show, Mm -hmm. Skin Decision, before and after, uh, was uh, nominated for an Emmy. That's right. Yeah. So she's coming on the show, uh, the Iranian-American plastic surgeon. uh, Next week, Tara Tebaugh coming Mm -hmm. up, Kayvon Zand, Mm -hmm. uh, and Ali Parsa. Ooh, isn't he, he a billionaire? Well, he's a. <laughs> that's is that the most important thing about well, him? I mean, what if I'd, he has a good personality? I'd right? like to know what to invest in. Uh-huh. That is very important. The British Iranian, uh, I guess, healthcare entrepreneur, you'd say. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to talking to him as well. All right, let's get to our featured guest, the fabulous Key on Groovy Shia. Oh, we have letters of the week, right? Oh yeah, yeah, we have some really good letters. From okay, last week. about what? Uh, Farhad Kashani. Who knew there were so many like Farhad Kashani fans? Yeah, from back in the day, <laughs> from their teenage <laughs> and years. Today, yeah. yeah. All right, we'll get to the letters of the week. The fabulous Kian Groovy Shia, Captain Reza. Stick around. Let's get to our feature guest. You know, if you are an Iranian anywhere in the world who is a fan of Persian popular culture and specifically Iranian music, you will recognize our feature guest today. He is an Iranian-British broadcaster with over 30 years of experience producing programming and hosting shows at BBC Persian, and you cannot miss his unique style. Behzad Bulur 
is an award-winning artist, fashion designer, humanitarian, radio personality, TV presenter, and senior producer. You may have seen shows like Kook or Boulou Banach or documentaries like Tea, A Revolution Brewing. Bessaud was born in Tehran in 1965, left Iran at the age of 18 after the Iranian Revolution in search of a place to be the kind of artistic personality he has always been. He took interest in fashion, interior design, uh, painting, and then also recorded a Persian classical album in 1990, which opened his way to BBC Persian Radio where he started working as a presenter and producer of youth and music programs and where he has remained in radio and TV at BBC for three decades. Bessad has made it his mission to use his notable platform to promote Iranian artists and underground music. You might say he's become the voice and face for millions of young Iranians over the years. And he has also dedicated much of his documentary work to the restoration of the Persian culture, language, arts, and history. And right now, Bessad Boulour joins me from London, England today. Hello, sir. Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, the whole stage is clapping. Thank you so much. I feel so good. I think we should end the interview now because I'm on, on the moon right now. And I'm going to agree with everything you're going to say from now because I love you. Are they clapping for the introduction or are they clapping for you? For everything. I'm over the moon. Who cares? <laughs> Let's go to Mars from now. Anyway, thank you so much for your introduction. And uh, yes, it was, it was partly true. <laughs> No, it was all true. I tried to achieve most of the things you said. And in my opinion, I, I've achieved 70% of what I wanted to do. But thank you so much. Radio, I did like <laughs> this astronomical number of 19 years. And television is 11 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. So some of the things you mentioned is from the TV period. Although in radio days, I did other things. Yes. In TV period, one of the best things I did as a documentary was a documentary. We went to Zanzibar yeah, in, in search of the... Uh, Iranians or the Persians who migrated to East Africa yes. a thousand years ago. Yes. Almost like Christoph, Christoph Colum, Christoph Columbia, Columbus, Christoph Columbia. Columbus. Columbus. So they went and they tried to convince the natives to become Muslims and they kind of forced them or convinced them to do, to create cities and small cities. And that was a thousand years ago. So I went to discover them and they are called the Shirazis. Anyway, that was an amazing documentary, and I loved it, and I haven't done much good things since. <laughs> okay, stop, stop for a second. First, I, this, is the, this is the problem. We do, bringing somebody like you on, a, who's a great presenter, a great personality, and, and somebody with years of broadcast experience. Are you going to allow me to ask questions, or are you just going to talk? No, <laughs> what's the point? I can just talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, please it's true. Do, please do. I'm surprised you have questions. You know, the, with me, if I have an interview, I just know the guy and I just let, let's see what happens. The questions are just a technicality. The other thing is, I never ever want to hear any more bullshit about you not speaking being able to speak english well your english is perfect you can Thank think you. you're you've just spoken very quickly i mean it's very clear that your english is fine i don't know why uh, and yet i have not seen i don't think i've seen any english interviews with you in researching you it was difficult to find um Thank things you, in, yes, yeah you're right something i have to think about it, there is a there's a few small things the reason is uh, from, I don't know, I think from from day one, from the age of 13, I had the oath to 
to do good for my people. Yes. And uh, based on that, when I went to BBC Radio, I was even invited to go to Outlook, which was a fantastic flagship program on the radio on Channel 4. Yes. I was a producer for four or five months. But then I set this golden line that I belong to my people. And based on that, and also fighting for the Persian language, because, you know, our language inside Iran is being totally destroyed, uh, including our identity because of so many other things that maybe we talk about later or not. But I had this dedication to keep, keep, keep originality, keep purity, because in times of lots of fakes, you need to keep purity. Yes. And, and it's just a reaction to today's world. So that's why I didn't have English, but maybe you can help me. <laughs> I can start typing it right now. Well, I am, I am. Uh, to, I mean, to, to be serious, I'm quite honored that you're doing this in English because I don't think you. No, I haven't done any. In all these years, I don't think you've ever done a full, like a full, a, a long form interview in English. And now, um, I know that you have this policy where you never use an English phrase in any of your broadcasts. You never use an English word or an Arabic word. Um, and I'm going to ask you about that, but I assume that's different. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. I'm a virgin in this interview. Don't hurt me. I, how, how is it I'm hurting you? No, don't ask me why not you use it in English. That's why I was Well, I was why not? Okay, then if that hurts you, I need to ask. I need to hurt you. No, of course. It hurts in a nice way. Yes. It hurts in a nice way. I, I, I want to give you an exp a chance to explain that because I, I know that, I mean, even when um, I saw a, an interview with, you were doing with Sina Valiola and he said, you know, we're doing a late night show, late night, and you and you corrected him and said, nah, like you don't want any English words used. Now, yes. for somebody who grew up in the diaspora like me, I'm very curious about that. Why, why would that be so important? Tell me why. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um the reason is, again, I'm reacting to today's uh, culture and direction that has been uh, forced, or we can say that has been accidentally moved. Like the Iranian culture and um, identity in the last 40 years has, has had no, no manager, let's say. It was left. Because before in the short time, there was like this culture centers, there was a, this, this center that would create Persian words, right. like instead of calling saying artist, which up to the edge of uh, Qajar period, they wouldn't say Hunarman. They invented the word Hunarman. Mm. Okay. This is basically to catch up with today's world, with your own, who you are, one of the colors of rainbow, not to be a gray color that it can be interpreted by other things. So it was that in the background. And also our culture has been left alone and been pushed into being a religious culture dedicated to religion rather right, than dedicated right, to right. who you, what is good for your uh, geographical location and regarding our history and all that. So based on that, suddenly people have voluntarily chosen to fake modernity. They have no connection with the world. They just chosen to speak as if someone has never lived in Iran and lived in America or something. So I'm reacting to that. Um, when, when something is being um, robbed off or being broken to pieces, I'm one of the pe people who want to just mention to people to be careful, hold on to the originality at this moment because it's being faked and being um, destroyed in a way. So, so, so help me with this. Help me with this and teach me this because I understand, for example, 
that um, the argument is that with the coming of Islam, the Arabic language became more intertwined with the Persian language, and that yes. for the authenticity of the Persian language uh, or the purity that you're talking about, you want to avoid Arabic words. No, so, no, 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 no. No, again, I'm very much reactionary to the time. Okay. You know, you cannot now talk about Arabic words. We have to first, this is a, it's like COVID. When COVID, Corona is attacking you, it's not the time to talk about influenza. It's, it's, we have to fight this kind of virus. But, I, but, I, but I guess where I was going with it was, what threat does, if, if there's a Persian kid in LA who, who is, speaking, no, is speaking Farsi that's and using some English fine. words, what's wrong with that? No, no, that's nothing wrong. Okay. I'm talking about Iranians inside Iran, uh -huh, in Tehran, uh -huh. in Rome, in Borazjan, in Mashhad. They speak and they, every day they add more and more English words in the show to create that they belong to the modern life. Because for them, this identity, uh. which is all just facade, is something that you can fake it by doing this. And that is that comes from a nation who has no confidence, has lost its confidence, has lost its roots. I remember a long time ago when somebody would come to work for you in Tehran, they would take her ID card, Shanasone. Mm -hmm. So that person could not go anywhere could not steal or anything. And by the time they finished their job or something, after a few years, they would give them back. So we have been robbed of our identity and we are nobody in a way. Right. We're just whatever the color is going to show us. So it's dangerous time. Bezard, I was going to say that this... Um I mean, this generalizes. There's other countries in the world, or everywhere in the world, this this is an issue. You 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 know, you could find people in in Cambodia or in parts of Africa or in 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 uh, parts of South America saying, "Well, English uh, is becoming too integrated into our language yeah, yeah, because that's, that's, because English is the lingua franca of the world at this point. It's the it's the it's yes. the language of the internet. It's the language of financial markets, etc. But I take it that your argument is particularly important or profound or, or potent because you're saying Persian culture is vulnerable because of what we've been through for the last yes. few decades. And also what you the point you're saying is about other countries. I don't know about them. You know, I don't know what they're going through, what is the social structure, how they're entangled with the modern life. But I know Japanese people have the whole line, but they they refuse to use the word time instead, you know? In Holland, they don't even use the word hotel. They use other things. You know, it's not about modern world. It's more about us as Iranians who are losing it because of 40 years of not having that gallery, not having the concert, not having the, the books that people should read mm -hmm. about their culture, about the, 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 yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't really know what, they don't know really what's going on in yeah. the world. So we try to fake it. You know, we are very different to anybody else. We have like 40 years of a different uh, government yes, doing yeah. a different thing. And people have chosen to react like to not to be themselves. It's not about observing the world. It's about not to be yourself. And then first we have to have a vaccine. I call it Pakistan Goftarinik, the good speech. Yes. We do that. And then Maybe in, I don't know, 50 years time when everybody has cooled down, we speak like 10 years ago. <laughs> then we talk about maybe purifying the language if it's necessary. But right now it's about the whole thing that we are okay. trying to say. Okay, fake. but you're, I mean, let me just play devil's advocate. So it wouldn't be a bad thing if there's a kid in Shiraz or Qom, as you said, who is 
I mean, what if I were to say, well, that's good that they're learning the English language or they're integrating no, learn it. No, English. No, that, that, the bad thing is when we have something like Wacht, your Zaman, Zaman or Wacht, which is our daily language, but they choose to take that out and use the word time instead. This is nothing to do with learning English. This is about losing your identity, choosing to become someone else in a very false but, way. But why? Why are you drawing that conclusion rather than just to say, okay, well, they're integrating into a global language that is that no, has no, it's English. No, integrating because they have no connection with the outside world. No, no. You know, you have to go to the psyche of the world. You know, what mm. you're saying is logic. Mm. What you're saying is very logical. But the psyche of Persians is different. Mm. They've, they're reacting to years and years of losing their identity, not having a direction about modern art, mm. about literature. There's none of that exists. Only people try to right, keep it themselves. Right. So this is something that people who don't speak English are choosing it. Every week they spread out something English because they want to show to the world they are not the, the Iranians that they think they are. They're this new identity. You know, you know what's really interesting about this for me, and, and uh, it certainly is part of why I, I really appreciate you, uh, you are you are seeing yourself as you know that you have influence. You know that you're. I mean, because you're on the screens, you know that people are seeing you and they're they're hearing you, they're watching you. Um, you're, you're aware that you're you're a role model, whether you like it or not. There's you know you're going to be you're going to have an influence. And the interesting part for me is is and I find this with um, with Iranian broadcasters who are broadcasting from who are outside of Iran. I mean, you've been in London yeah. for four decades, as we've just said, you know. Um, but you're cognizant of the fact that your audience is predominantly in Iran. And so yes, you're yes. sensitive to that. It's it's so interesting to me because with millions of people outside of Iran right now, you still have to be very aware of who you're speaking to and that those people are not Gian in Toronto and and Reza in Berlin and uh, Fereshte in, in Los Angeles, but that they're, they're the kids or the people in Iran. And, and I always think that that must be a little bit of a, if you'll excuse the colloquialism, a little bit of a mind fuck. You know, you're yeah. you're in London, you're 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 broadcasting, and you're around the world. I mean, you walk out and you go to Tesco or whatever. Sure. You're, it's you know. even more difficult than that because we, as a BBC Persian, I realized that there are other countries who speak Persian language, and that is Afghanistan, Tajikistan, part of Uzbekistan, which once was there. And then something very interesting. Other than that happened, because when I went to BBC, I just I, I, re I realized who we are. Before that, I was a kid from Tehran with big dreams about changing the world. You know, bring back Durud, bring back Sepas, bring back the, the glories in a positive way, not in a racist stuff, because I'm, I just my mind doesn't work like that. And there I realized a person in Afghanistan, don't say you're in a hurry, say you're We say Al-An, that they don't understand. Huh. And also in in Tajikistan, they, they have Russian words. And I realize how fantastic it is for me to not to be affected, not to carry disease, not to have, you know, herpes and give it to other people. And if other people have it, I don't want to catch it. I want to be just that person. And I die that way. I learned to, to speak a language that is clear for many people around the world and maybe in different decades. So I believe I speak a very simple language, actually. And, I, and many words I don't know, I create the caricature of words that many times I don't know what I'm going to say in Persian, but I create the word. 
the words, sorry. So, so I'm made of all this. So it's, it's about originality and purity in a positive way. And also not to be affected by the trends of time. Like 20 years ago, all the middle-class Persians would, would say rare. They would love to speak like American accent. Mm. Okay. And in those days, they said, what's the, what, what's the problem? It, it was a, like a disease. And if you ask anybody, why you speak like that? said, so you always speak like that. You know, and, and, and they were really surprised that we actually uh, um, criticizing that. And, but that, that trend went away. And there was a reaction about creating a new Persian, like, like um, um, Khafan, right. French. Right. They were like unusual slangs, which were Persian slangs. How do you feel about that, those, those colloquialisms? No, they, they are very interesting. When I look at the audience, Iranians in 1990s, 2000s, 2010s, the, the mind has changed. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fourth dimensional Bezat. Because I know the IQ of the people, the way they spoke, the way they were interested, the way they were absorb and analyze things in 1990s was very different to 2000 and 2010 from now on. It's completely different. I have to explain this five times. But how do you avoid becoming uh, the old guy on his soapbox who's, uh, you know, just scolding young people for very the way? Difficult. Yeah, I mean, I mean no, my, very difficult. Let me, let me, let me say, say this. I'm this way about the English language. I'm very, I've, you know, as a kid, I would sleep with the dictionary next to my bed and I'm, I've always been interested in words. So there's things that will really get under my skin when somebody says anyways, for example, to start a, a sentence instead of anyway, yeah. they'll say anyways, I got to go to the store and you go, oh, no, it's not anyways. But my sister, who's a linguist would say you know settle down language is fluid it changes over time that's what language does and you can't be a headmaster yes. who's going to uh, dictate what what every the way everybody's going to speak I forever know what you're saying. yes the language is fluid for a normal society we are a, we are interesting we are very similar to ethiopians of 19, 1970s we are turned apart i don't find um example of Iran similar to any other examples in the world where society turned apart with two different mindsets two different groups it's like Star Trek there are this group outside which are uh, entangled with the, with, the, with, the, with the host country if influence the, the cultural edges has been moved or backwards or forwards and the other group in Iran who are completely under the regime and they're, they're changing different so we are very different and I cannot accept the same a change in language and culture you see in America. That is a healthy country. That is, they're moving. Right. They have democracy, right. they have things. So we are very different. And because of that, we have to be very careful. We have to hold. You speak English, you speak proper English. I love that. Iranians in America speak Finglish. I don't care. I love it. I will speak Finglish to them. Uh -huh. a, a person in Iran who is uh, from Arabic um, background speak Arabic in your own home even use arabic words in persian that's fantastic you know in my perfect world we're going to learn pahlavi language which is the root of our persian language and in that root all the nations in iran or people from baluchistan even in azerbaijan they're all from the root of the pahlavi so we all feel united and everybody from arab background baluch they, they should learn their own mother language every week just like other places in the world so i'm not a nationalist you know 
I'm quite a very unusual animal. Well, you are an unusual animal, and you're a paradox. And so, to extend your <laughs> metaphor, which I I loved because it's also getting me all uh, uh, excited because of the pop culture uh, nature of it. But to, to extend your Star Trek metaphor of the yes. two societies and then the Star Trek, uh, I mean, which one are you in? This is the paradox I'm, I'm trying to get out of being Bessod Balur in the sense that okay. you you right can't. Now, I'm, I'm assuming I, you. I I'm assuming you can't even return to Iran, and that. And yet you're speaking to and for a population that's there. It must be, it's a very interesting position to be in. Yes, and I've dedicated and, and I, I, I renewed my oath in my bed around 2 a.m. one night a year ago that I'm even more dedicated. I have to be that guiding light maybe for those who, who have lost themselves in a way, in my own mind. But what I'm doing now, and it's extremely difficult, Jean, you know, I, I, it's, my programs is on one side, planning to go to Spain, when to say the editing all this. Oh my God! You know, it's, you have to. Pr- I'm producing and presenting and directing a program which is very fluid because I very much pre- believe in moments. So I don't really plan. I, I can just plan a journey, but the moments have to appear on days that I go to countries, which is a weird thing. I promise to do our celebrations every month. We had a pure celebration, like in, in the months of June, we have a June celebration from the ancient time. Uh, in, in July, we have a July and August. And each one had a very interesting uh, things to do. So I recreate them. I, I structuralize them. I, I see artists who will be dedicated to that particular day, do art forms, do a little play, and ask children to join. And that is to react, to fight against sadness about mourning. Iranians are happy. In our nature, we had celebrations. In our nature, we loved trees, animals. We didn't kill them because they, we think that they belong to us. They were created for us. You know, we are very much part of the harmony. So I try to get all the good things from being Iranian that can make us an interesting color in this rainbow of the world and try to practice it. I had Sadeh, I had Spandor Mazga, which I even hate the word Spandor Mazga, but now I'm purely into it. And I made them interesting. I have a table, I have a special music, but they're all pure. They're really from that time. Like just recently, we had this, uh, the, the um, summer solstice celebration. But, but hang on a second. Hang on a second. Um, uh, you say so, so no, much. No, what I'm, I have to put it together. Okay. So it's not only don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. I'm actually, actually bringing back celebrations. I'm spending money on it. Um, um, most of that, my heart and my mind is going to it. For every one of these two-hour celebrations which are happening, so much <laughs> management goes, so much heart goes, because it's like you're going to a new place and nobody's with you. I'm going to an empty house, and it's for me to recognize it's a fantastic place, there's a treasure here or not, because when I look back, there's no one behind me to support me. I'm just a lone star. I'm a lone ranger. And that really hurts, that, that really breaks my heart. And, I, and when I do an Instagram live on this celebration, which I'm doing, only 300 people come, 200 people come. So that even it's like a punch in the face. But I'm, I'm going out, I'm going to go every month, I'm going to re-celebrate all those things we had as a Persian to bring back our beautiful identity, something that unifies us, not, not something that uh, separates us from the rest of the world. We are not better than anybody else. We are, you, you said something too interesting. You said last year at two in the morning, you realized you yes. want to double down on this. So what happened that was the precipitant of that two in the morning realization? 
Okay. And you know, there's this beetle that that uh, is called dung beetle. It goes on, goes to the to the feces of animals and uh-huh. gathers it together. Gradually, makes it bigger and bigger, bigger, <laughs> and then okay. rolls it and gets so big that it sort of crushes underneath it. So that was years and years and years of me creating this board, and suddenly it explodes. That I am dedicated to this. Okay. And like a day before, I was more into doing this and that, but not into that. And 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 it just renews the oath. Because I feel so lonely in this. I feel so lonely. That is unbelievable. But I think it's the right thing. I think that one day when I die, some generation in 50 years' time, we look back in the books and say, oh my God, this was very interesting. <laughs> he actually structurized a celebration which are now uh, only celebrated by Zoroastrians. He made it modern. He made it cute. He made it sexy. He made it fun. Mm-hmm. You know, we can look good in it, not not rather than looking like old people being really serious for celebrations. Let me come back to you feeling alone in what you do, because that's an interesting thing for someone to say who has uh, hundreds of thousands of clicks of every episode of what he puts up It's uh, and obviously has a real audience. Um, but you you talked about you know going to spain and shooting and and uh, you know you're you're a 360 kind of person meaning that you want you do it all you produce it you have the concept you want it uh you you probably edit it etc um but in the moment you like to be spontaneous you've said so yes. uh, you know um uh Kambi Soseni, when he was on this program he and i were talking about being in broadcasting for years and he and i are both the same in the sense that even if it seems like what we're doing is spontaneous we plan out every single thing we know exactly the roadmap of where we're going to go uh even if we go into a uh, a situation where we're we're acting like we're improvisational or, or spontaneous do you ever use a script do you have a script when you're doing your visit to the Rumi sites in Turkey, do you have a script you're working off or are you just Behzab Bulu yeah. are you seemingly just talking okay. to camera? First of all, I do envy you and Tomis because I always dreamed of being the person who can write things down because that gives you so much confidence. I mean, uh, when you're on camera or on stage, I'm, 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 the only thing I have with me is fear and joy mixed together. Yeah, yin and yang. I live with both of these mm. Like the ancient Persian kings, they said, you know, on the crowns, they had the two wings because they believed that with two wings, you can fly. Uh, you always need this contradiction. The, so I sort of keep that Persian thing in me and I envy you very much. I, what I do is, for instance, in, in uh, thanks for bringing uh, the Rumi thing, because to me, that was an amazing uh, few years of research and two years of filming. Beautiful work. What I do is... Um, I mean, I did research without doubt. I read books. I went to even libraries. You know, remember there was something called library? It wasn't Google. <laughs> and I also speak to experts who, are, who know more than me, have 20 years on this, 20 years on that, 10 years on this, 15 years, thesis and all that. And I have that in my hand and I write just one line, like one word, one this, that. When I went to Cunha, I saw this, the tomb of, of uh, Molana. And I was in a hotel, which was a beautiful hotel called Hitch, nothing, um, taken from the word Hitch. And I saw the crown or something of the, t- of the tomb, and I said, there's some message in this, and I have to discover this. You know, there's something about this shape. And I read about, I started reading that night at 5 a.m. about different tomb shapes. And based on that, I realized this was made later than him. He never saw that. But it's not written anywhere, you know? Mm. I feel about the builders who made this 
about 50 years later with the money from this guy who was fascinated by the lover wanting to impress her. So all this in my hand when I said, this uh, tomb is in turquoise color. When I say that, all these people are in my head. Hmm. So the weight of the words to me are very important. And I learned that not only from learning, but I learned that also from singers like Haide, uh, vocalists like Shahram Nazir, who does um, classical Persian, Mo'in, Dariush. For instance, Shahram Nazir says, I've, learned, I've read that line 10 times, I didn't give a damn. What was that? But the way he sees, says it, I'm, I'm really in it. When I'm talking to a flute player in Kunia about sound of flute that sounds like a broken flute, my heart was pumping. It's all about moments. So, so it's all about moments. So you don't even, you, you don't have a, when you sit down for an interview with, I mean, does this extend to interviews too? You're sitting there with Ebby and you don't know the roadmap of where you want to go in the interview? You just, you just start talking? Yes, yes. Because like scientists, you know, scientists, they know there's a cell and they have to discover what's in it. For me, people are that. I sit down and I'm just looking at the way he's sitting, looking at his hair, looking at the person here. And I know about him anyway. I know yes, like yes. 20, 30 yes. years in the back of my head and I've forgotten about it. But then he has the interview, he has the questions. And it's all about moments that in that moment, there's an interview which is different to any other moment. And I have to discover that. I agree. There's a slight difference. I think that the, the nuance is that, first of all, I, I, you do have to be researched and you're, you're clearly researched. So I'm not suggesting yes. that you've, you've got that part. I think the one difference, and I, my philosophy has always been do as much research as you can, yes. write it out or, or have a clear sense of where you want to go, then throw it out. Again, I said, I envy you. No, I envy you actually, because, no, no, no. because the reason, the first. reason you build that roadmap is, is fear. As you say, in my case, the fear that without the roadmap, I'll give up an opportunity with Abby to not go to some place. I'll forget that, or I'll note that some interesting thing that I really want to get to in the interview. So I really want to think about where I'm going to go with this thing. Whereas you have good. the confidence to know that you, you know, you're going to make something of it without having to do that. I would say that I envy you for having that kind of confidence. No, again, maybe some of my interviews don't have the substance, but they have the motion. Yes. And that, that is something I always, I always doubt and fear. You know, sometimes much with that, which, which sometimes goes to there and but sometimes comes back. But when you look at the interviews, of course, you've seen, I mean, I watch TV all the time, even... Even the movies for me is like a structure of a new idea, to how to structuralize a program. Um, even a fantastic way of uh, American sitcoms are made, which are entangled with different stories and different lines. So I see that. And, and this, there are different styles, as you know, and, and you can get, just get something different from a person. And that, for me, the moment of joy is, is the, that moment of discovery. Yes. There is an emotion and there is a sense in the tone of the voice that cannot compared to anything else, even it's better than information. So that's why I'm kind of feeding on that, on that kind of bacteria, you know, I feed on that. <laughs> it's always herpes and bacteria with you. There's always yes. some some metaphor to do with some bodily disease or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I love them. I'm always scared of them. People are scared of bacteria and herpes, aren't they? I mean, as, as soon as I, I have, oh my God, do I have herpes? 
You know, you know uh, where this all goes for me is is something that I did want to ask you about. Um, it's part of the roadmap that I had for you, which is that I mean, you really do stand out. You know, you you stand out obviously as a. I mean, I think if you were just on the bus or the subway, you would stand out because you're you're such an interesting guy in terms of the way you acquit yourself and your appearance and the hat and the you know. But um, you you you're like a an old British dandy. Do you know the, 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 the a modern the, old British a, a modern da- dandy. Yes, yes. The the tradition of dandyism. You know. Um, yeah, of course. There was a there was a fabulous um, a British guy. He's now dead. Uh, that I interviewed once. The name Sebastian Horsley, who wanted to bring back dandyism and and always wore a hat and these fabulous outfits and um, but you have that and you have this spontaneity and it makes you um it makes you stand out as a broadcaster but i dare say it makes you really stand out as a broadcaster on the bbc (laughs) um and and even bbc persian which tends to be uh you know people tend to be yes let's face it uh so i'm curious how i mean i guess at this point they would be cool with you they'd know how good a broadcaster you are but was that ever an issue with with the network yes. Did, was it ever hey buddy can you put on you know some real clothes and yes. stop with this spontaneity and all of that i i went to bbc in 1989 when my album came out and it was interesting because going to bbc you had all these rumors created by different dictatorships in iran that bbc is this and i remember when i went into the interview i was not looking anywhere i was having my head down and don't want to speak to anybody, only fat on who interviewed me because otherwise I would be influenced. And uh, anyway, and funny enough, when I started to work, I, I brought the idea of a naughty boy uh, <laughs> to, to BBC because before, the, needless to say, BBC was fantastic. It was where you see genuine literate people who were wise, who were, who were knowledgeable about politics and world. They all look good with suits. I love suits. I'm a big pro tie. You know, I love to, I have a metal tie, for instance. So I came from this background of fashion design influenced by Sasanian period, which is the Iranian Byzantine style. Mm. So I was very much trying to bring back Persian sense of dress code that has died out after Reza Shah's modernism. So I, had, I was full of this. So I went to, to BBC and, and I remember one of the fantastic poets, Mr. Kionosh, and he was really upset. He said, what are you doing? Why are you dressed like that? <laughs> Dress something properly. But he was, he was a lovely guy. I loved him so much. And I always would war with him and he couldn't take it. He just couldn't understand me. He said, what the hell? Are and I remember in 1993, I wore skirts. And uh, basically because I wanted to reinvent Akamenia. I want to even go further back to the roots to bring back to that. The thing is, uh, it took a long time for people to accept me to realize that the person who looks like that is not out of being careless. Mm. Because there's a very fine edge between someone who doesn't care and someone who extremely cares, Mm -hmm. who is a man of details. I came from atoms up, not from, I don't know, (laughs) from a big plastic bag going to an atom. So I had that in mind, and, and I proved with my, the style of my work, the sensitivity, the attention I had. Gradually, they respected me, but then during the TV time was again, the whole shit happened again. I remember even um, from British broadcasting that we had like um, mentors and minders who show us how TV is, because we had no idea about TV. 
and I had like my, my shirt was down to my <laughs> belly button open and all that. I wanted to look you know, sexy like that. And they said, you yeah, cannot dress like this, dress like that. And I kind of accepted them, but at the same time, I wanted to be a naughty person. So then gradually I, I established myself. There is a danger, Jian, in our conservative world that someone with the knowledge, someone who is activist, someone who's serious, looks boring, looks flat. The, the image of a macho man is still there yeah. for my sexuality yeah. Yeah. as being serious. And, and because of that, I haven't been taken seriously many times, yeah. many times. And it has hurt me so much. I haven't slept at nights. I was hurt. I, I was in tears even. Yeah. Up to the age, just even very, very recently. So that had a cost. That had a massive cost for me to be what I am. And it's funny thing is to just to add to this. Um, about 20 years ago, I, I, I came to America. I was question, 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 question. Then funny enough, I went to Afghanistan. And I was question, question. <laughs> it was, I, I realized I'm a saint and a Satan. Everywhere I go, people cannot take me out of the streets or they doubt about what I look like. So, so has there ever been in that delta between the fear and joy of Basad Bulur, has there ever been, uh, I mean, be honest, be rock together, you know, uh, ha- has there ever been a time uh, where you just thought, fuck it, I, why don't I cut my hair? Why don't I put on a, you know, yes. a, a square-shouldered suit and uh, play the game because then I can be elevated. Then they'll send me to the Olympics to cover something that I or something like that. Then I won't be taking all this shit. Yeah, it was only when I was eleven <laughs> when I had that sense. <laughs> because even then, I remember uh, my mother was uh, very careful about the way we dress and and maybe my sense of being in my mind okay in my mind not necessarily i am original and beautiful if i think i want to be it was because of her and i remember they brought things from even kuwait kuwait in those days was like paris of the middle east hmm. there was no dubai and, and and if you want to bring original clothes if you haven't traveled to london they would come from kuwait so we had like lee we had wrangler we had high uh, platform shoes which i had at the age of nine i mean no nine-year-old in Tehran <laughs> ever had that yeah. and uh, things like that so I, and that at the age of 11 i remember i was and i uh, sorry 12ish maybe i was on my puberty okay i was the early developer and i remember i had a very long eyelashes and i looked different and i was just about to cut my eyelashes and my mother held, held my hand said no so what do you do i said i want to change i don't want to look like this and i want to just look like everybody else don't wear these trousers which are flared trousers i don't want to wear it and she said no you have to you're 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 good looking as you are and shouldn't change because i was i had fear of this machoism around me so that was the only time and apart from that even in the heart of pakistan when i was walking in a weird looking way or when i interviewed shahram shapare and i had this crazy uh, (laughs) false prophet look about 10 years ago because i just wanted that look and i regret it to this day only in those moments even then i said no let's hold on to this and i'm even embarrassed about looking at my image then but somehow i was stupid enough to hold it on and i never regretted since yeah I mean, I can uh, empathize. I, I uh, am nowhere near as fabulous looking as you are, but I, but in, in all my years at CBC, I know, I know for a fact that there were some executives who, 
they, they just kind of see you as a troublemaker if you don't yeah. if you don't toe the line and the, and part of towing the line is the image of the way you're supposed to look and the way you're supposed to act and and um and and that can be it's interesting that you bring up being 11 years old because I was going to ask you about being a kid in Iran and you you've talked about how you yes. were artistic from very early childhood and when you were growing up there were these parties at your house yes. and you were told to come out and perform <laughs> little bass yeah, yeah. from like the age of 3 years old what would you perform what would you need to do <laughs> Actually, funny enough, uh, those 1960s and 70s that I lived as a child was amazing years. It was, if you look at American 1950s, our lifestyle was very much like that. A nice car, a nice house, an empty Tehran. Tehran was, wasn't as busy as it is now. And we were living in parts of Tehran which were being newly built and buildings looked fresh and interesting because the architects were coming from Europe or something and they, they cared. So it was a very interesting lifestyle we had and I never realized we were well off. I thought we were from a middle class, but apparently we were middle, middle plus. And um, so what happened was um, there was this ad on TV for a drink called Oso. So I loved it and I wanted, I was singing it like a mad little boy and they bought me a guitar and they forced me to play it in front of 20 people. <laughs> and I always hate my mother forcing me to do that. But maybe that was the root of wanting to attract attention, wanting to be pretentious in a negative way, but positive to impress people in a positive way, make them laugh, make them smile. And even up to this day, my dream is when someone has lost someone just two minutes ago, I make them laugh. Mm. If I can achieve that, I can die. You know, there's. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, which is that I think you and I have something in common, which is a devotion. At least in my case, it's a devotion to David Bowie, and I. Yes. And I, I thought of Bowie. I've always. It's funny because I didn't know this until I started researching you and and saw some of your old Instagram posts about Bowie and stuff. But I. I mean, I've always thought of you when it comes. To, I've always thought of Bowie. I should say when it comes to you. Whenever I've I've sort of seen you, because because it's clear you're. You know, Bowie was an artist in every facet of what he did. Even as a young man, he it wasn't he wasn't just the songwriter and the singer and the instrumentalist, but he would design the set. He would make the clothes that he wore. You know, he was yes. kind of doing all of that. And I, you're kind of like that. Did you? Were you? aware of of say a david bowie by the um early 70s when you were a kid in iran and if and if if not what kind of art were you gravitating towards who were your role models for becoming this this character you became okay that is interesting because david bowie is someone i got to know when i was in london 1980s okay uh, in 1970 david bowie wasn't that big in iran but um i would i would come back to that um at the age of nine, I was done with religion and God at the age of nine. I, I even remember the moment that that happened to me. And I was always fascinated by two different things, which has influenced the way I am. My yin and yang was, of course, like every kid. I'm sure you are the same. It's the astronaut and the dinosaur. Also, I was fascinated by dervishes, the Iranian Sufis, the way that my parents were talking about them, they were playing this instrument called tambour, and they look really interesting, they look really cool with long hair. They look like, um, um, I don't know, a primitive man, caveman. And at the same time, I went to Tahtajamshi, Persopolis, I saw this, 
I didn't have beard, of course. And I said, oh, this, they look really interesting. So my influence was a mixture of all this and, and Europe. The, the, the fascination with things are changing in Europe, the way they looked. And I remember in 1970, actually now you mentioned, now I remember in 1973, I think I came to Europe and also 1975. And that was the year that um, glam rock, right. most of the boys were wearing makeup. At the same time, the amazing ice creams being sold. So mm -hmm. this, and for me, it was very amazing to being able to um, play a role which you're not supposed to be, but yet be different. Uh, mm -hmm. I have to uh, give you an example from an anthropologist um, that in some tribes in Amazon, um, I mean, what I'm saying now is so maybe politically incorrect because our world is changing so much, but I'm saying it in an innocent way as a person who I am. Uh, it was anthropologists told me that in some Amazon tribes, they are really macho men wearing like uh, they dress like women of the, of the of the tribe mm. and dance like women, just to prove that they can still be a man looking mm. like that. So uh, that to me was amazing, you know, like like being um, a man, although looking taking all these looks. And later on, when I realized that the Persian men before Islam used to wear makeup, they used to wear sormen, the eyeliner. And we used to wear jewelry. We started this stuff, the high heels too. Yes, high heels, of course. You know that uh, it was brought to Europe during Safavid time. Uh, and it's, of course, the, um, you know, it's the horse riders boots. Yes, yes. So David Bowie, Persian man, they all matched up. And courage, something that David Bowie had was amazing courage. It was amazing to yeah. be able to go yeah. on a stage looking like that at that time. Yeah. But maybe if I was in Iran, and Iran didn't go through that revolution, and I would still be in Iran, maybe I would be able to do that uh, social revolution for some people, yes. bringing them confidence, but in a, in, in a way that is interesting, you know, you need to develop. Just to put a final, a fine point on, uh, on Bowie, because I'll use any opportunity I can to promote him. I, I, uh, I really feel like the world, uh, you, you reference the changes that are happening in the world in terms of social ideas and mores and sexuality and all of that. I feel like the world is just catching up to David Bowie. Not quite even there yet, yes. but just catching David up Bowie to the, Bowie. Was Bowie was positive. doing this 40 years ago, 30 years ago, you know. Um, but you, you talked about the how things might have been different if the revolution hadn't happened. And, and I wanted to ask you about that moment because you seem like – Besajan, the quintessential kind of kid, you were 15 years old at the time, who would have had to have been deeply affected by this revolution and the changes of the very early yes. 1980s. You were the antithesis of so much that Khomeini and the new regime represented. What what was that period like for you? And was it clear for you immediately that you were going to need to get out of Iran? Yeah, uh, what happened was um, when the revolution happened, uh, I remember we, we, we loved getting out of school and schools were getting closed because of saying Magbashra. It was very interesting. So we all joined it. I remember it was the autumn of 1978. And imagine like a few years ago, I had done with God. Okay, I was just an atheist person. It was funny because the atmosphere of the revolution was so strong that I was saying, Yah Hussein. I even believed in Hussein as one of the martyrs. So I went through this amazing shit, <laughs> it changes. It was unbelievable. But I loved it because it gave you so much power as if you belong to this massive group. When you went to the, to the um, 
Hast du Horror? Also Demonstration? It's Demonstrations, yeah. yes. Wenn ich sage, you really feel like you're 1000 people. It's amazing feeling. So I feel that and I joined that and I even saw Khomeini in the moon because you know you can imagine things. Right. And then when the revolution happened, I remember I, I had that nine year old in my head, back of my head, and this new Behzad is different at the same time, a massive pro Persian and that pride we had. So it was so much. And then what happened in, in April 1979, I was in a pizza shop called Cheguara by Albor's school, which I used to go in mid downtown Tehran. And they suddenly said, close the doors, close the doors. And they sort of had the oldest blinds coming down. And I heard people shouting, smashing to the blinds. And <laughs> so what happened? So there's Chomardara, they are the hooligans, Islamic hooligans beating right. up the students because they are not agreeing with the revolution. And suddenly that triggered something in me. And then very soon I became lefty. And then very soon, uh, like within a month, when I saw more people being hurt, I, I started who I am now. I grew a beard, had my oath about bringing back the purity and the pride of Iran that we have lost. Wow. And from that day I said Durud instead of Salam and Sepas and started speaking Persian in my own naive way. And I remember started reading, 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 reading books, 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 till God knows even now to, 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 to find evidence, to find rule, rules and regulations. You know, Jewish people back in early 20th century, they recreated Hebrew language. Mm. It didn't even exist. They, they recreated, they, they taught it to the children, and now there's a language of a nation. So that exists, and we exist, and I'm learning these things about how identity in today's world is so important. It's about being an addition to the world, not to be a slave to the world. Was it a consideration for you to stay in Iran, or was it oh, clear, yes, yes. Was it clear that you had to go? Was the, yeah, absolutely. I became pure, I became so strongly Persianized, you know. Even I had my hair long, and I remember the pastors, the moral police were, were beating you. If I had the hair just, just five centimeters long, I had the hair as long as this, I would have it in my shirt and button it up. And I don't know how I survived for five years with that kind of a hair. Okay, I don't know how. And I learned tambour, I learned setar, I wanted to become pure Persian. So then the war happened and there was this extreme religious society. I don't know what, what's the word for it, but religious attitude in everyday life. And that to me was the end of it because I, I, didn't, be, I didn't belong to that kind of society. And my father made a massive mistake. He said that if you uh, cannot go to university, you don't do concur, which I don't know what's the word for it, like GSC or whatever, yeah. I will send you immediately to, to, to Europe. So I remember there was this GCSC, imagine, in Iran, and the first person who got up after two minutes gave a blank page to the, to the mind that there was me. And I was so happy because in August, I, I ran away from Iran that year, and it was uh, since then I'm still traveling, traveling in time, traveling in uh, horizontal lines and vertical lines of time and, and reality to, to build and purify and reinvent uh, an Iranian, as if that Iranian would live in 21st century. What was it like landing in London in 1983 as an 18-year-old? Was it 
I mean, on on the one sense, it must be bittersweet. You've had to flee this country that, the very country that you're on a mission to to preserve the culture of. Uh, yes. And uh, you're in this new place. You don't speak the language very well. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, it had to feel emancipating. I mean, there's no shortage of eyeshadow or long hair or high heels that you could wear once you get to London. So, so and yet it's free to do. How do yes? So how how do you now reflect on those years of the 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 nineteen eighties of coming to London as a as an artsy Persian kid? Okay, that was uh, interesting. Thank you. And I came to London to go to America because for Iranians, America we are the Mamalomdikai. In America is the end. Yeah, Be behind that you drop off the world because the world is flat. So the end is America. But somehow I went to the language school and my brother was here and um, I suddenly saw the, the punks in the street and I was as if it's the end of the world, you know. I, I knew them from the videos. But to see a society that allows that to me was the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. And there were like people having coffee with the rats coming out of their shirts. I said, how free is that? How beautiful is this? That people, without hurting other people, can be who they are. And that, for me, was the positive. And the negative was the depressing city, because you had no friends, you had nothing, you didn't know the language, you were on your own, and nobody knew you, nobody cared about you. The streets were empty, it was dark, it was cloudy, and... So this mishmash of these two gradually created stronger me. I remember from the day, second week, I started working as a choreographer and I started doing business jobs on my own, earning 20 pounds, 10 pounds, because I had no money. I couldn't even buy Coke. Um, and Coke, that is the drink. Yeah, I was going <laughs> like, like, to say. It was like 20 pence. Right. It was too much. <laughs> so, so it was very depressing, but I said to allow me to be who I am. And I read books, and in those days there were bookshops, Persian bookshops, which was <laughs> amazing. And I was sitting there all the time because there were these wise men in the bookshop selling books. I could talk to them because unlike the Iranians in London, they were like, they were speaking my language. They knew the, the, the authors, the knowledge. So gradually that depressing time became, because I lost my virginity, I became a man. I realized what sexuality is. You have so many angles. It's not just putting your lips together as we did at the age of 12, hmm. just putting our lips together, doing nothing. It's about kissing in a different way. It's about touching each other. Women can hurt you in, in having sex. And uh, it was very, very interesting. So I became a man I am, and I became more and more pure actually as who I wanted to be. And I, a few years ago, I saw a, a Iranian girl who was a Hezbollah in my mind with a, with a headscarf in London and she was praying every day and I, and I told her, how come you're in London doing this? Uh, and she said, in London, I could be a better Muslim than I can be in Iran. Wow. So somehow London has a fantastic freedom, which is backfiring in my opinion. Backfiring? Yeah, uh, because I think that uh, we shouldn't go there. Okay. Um, because, I, did, I mean, I do yeah. think that that London is. Uh, I've always. It's obviously my, the city of my birth, and I and I, I've always said it's different from the rest of England. London doesn't even belong to the UK. Sure, sure. No, you're it's, it's only. Right. It's its own thing. It's it's a. No, it's the most international for, for city in the world. Yeah, it's a multinational, multi-dimensional city. Yeah, which has changed since two thousand three, after the Iraq 
invasion by the Americans and then the Syrian war, then the Afghan war. Uh, the, the structure of the London that are living in the edge of the poverty, in the edge of the middle class parts of the city is totally changed. The whole Europe has changed as we know it. So uh, that is a different story. But London did help me and I became, I read Sadehadad books in London. I read about Mazdaq, the, uh, the reformists of the Zoroastrian faith back in Byzantine time. I read about money. I realized we have these messengers uh, that I was looking for and I found them in London, in the bookshops, Persian bookshops. So I owe a lot to London. You know, people looking at you today and, I, and I, I know that there are Iranians around the world who would recognize you in a second if they saw you or they know your name or they're very familiar with all the work you've done over the years. Um, you know, they know you as a broadcaster. I mean, which is not to say that your fans yeah. or people who scratch beneath the surface won't know that you're a, a lot of other things. But this period of the 1980s feels like um, without knowing you then and without just w w even talking to you about it other than just reading about it and knowing a little bit about you, it feels like it was a very fertile time for you artistically. You're, yes. you're, it's fashion designer, calligraphy, uh, murals that interior you're painting, design, your mural. interior design, and, and, and a musician too, and you make this classical record. And I wonder, this is kind of a twisted question, but, I, but you should appreciate that. Sure. If you knew... In 1990, when you get that first gig at BBC Persian Radio, that you would end up being at BBC, being a broadcaster for the next 31 years, would you still have wanted to do it in the sense that you can't be all of those things? If you're yes. if you're also focusing on being a great broadcaster and putting the kind of effort you've put into doing regular programs for 30 years, I'm yes. wondering if you would look look at it from the standpoint of the of the 28 year old uh, you know or the the 25 year old uh, Bessard and and go actually uh, you know that's going to be too confining for me for the next 30 years. Sure, yeah, it's interesting what you're saying because. Um, back in 1980s, uh, everything I did, I did it right to the end. It wasn't like a uh, confused person, no, not at all. The fashion design I did, I, I lived with it for six years and I was exporting to Japan. I remember Jean-Paul Gaultier came to my little stall. I had a stall which looked like shit. And he said that he wants to buy the idea of my jeans and I didn't sell it to him. And my jeans were selling like 200 pounds. It's not a joke in 1980s. It's, it's a lot of money. It's like paying 4,000 pounds now. I remember bands, uh, funny enough, David Bowie banned the drama boat from me for his gig in Manchester in those days. And I remember Tip Howe was buying it, This Way Up, Culture Club, one of the uh, artists were hanging out together. And imagine, I was only like 23 at the time. And at the same time, I was very well known in Iranian uh, layer of society in London because I, I was the one who was in every function you can imagine. <laughs> from the uh, dead poet society of the LGBT of the time up to uh, Hoy's um, poetry night to um, let's build a new era. Everywhere I was playing tambour, have a little uh, speech, doing poetry, talking to people, and they knew me. So they used to call me Benz of the Atomenite, the Atominian. 
And so, so it was a fantastic. Mean? People but, but, knew but, me. What does that mean, Besa the Atamanian? Akamanians were the 2,500 years ago. Ah, the, ah, the, ah, ah, I thought you said Akamanians. At- atom, and like, like atomic. I wasn't sure what you were saying. Akamanian, no, no, yes. Akamanian, yes, my yes, accent. Yeah. So it was extremely fertile. And I did theater. I did gigs in London. And I even found a bunch of money in Covent Garden. It was, it was almost half a kilo of 20 pounds. I found it on the street. I took it, put it up, looking around it. Nobody's looking, and I ran. I was in my head. I was dreaming. I became a millionaire, and I sat down and I opened up. It was, it was, a, it was fake money. It was from a <laughs> filming, apparently, the Dream Conga. So that happened. But what happened was, then I did murals for the city and became employed in a job. I was doing so many jobs, and I was very rich at that time. But when BBC happened, um, at the same time, other t- things started to fail. And because BBC loved me and they wanted me to just be trainee, do small jobs, someone maybe at the back of my head, I thought that this is maybe a future, maybe my subconscious. Mm. So uh, when I started just helping Matab, who had the request show, she was a fantastic lady. I met her in the Hafez poetry classes, and she really helped me to get into this um, uh, BBC. And I was just helping her. I was like her left hand. And then when things started to fail, my mural business with uh, DKT uh, company, um, uh, music, I couldn't carry more. I lost my girlfriend, this, that, that, that. Then suddenly it was only BBC. And I remember I knew and didn't know anything about uh, broadcasting. So I used to go at 7 a.m. to the uh, studio just to play with the with the machinery there and just to learn how to record things. So I learned it. And, and what I did was to survive this. To me, it was a song. It was, it was performing on stage that the music was the story. Yeah. And the song and the lyrics was my words. Yes. And I, from that day back in ninth, late 1989 to now, I look at it as a work of art. I'm, I'm just doing songs. I'm doing murals. Yes. I'm, I'm doing fashion design. I'm doing a little play, uh, but they just have this unified form of a video program. But to me, really, is that uh, my inspirations are so many directors, and um, I even get inspiration from a comic book. The way the colors are working, this, 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 so it's in a right way. I hear you. I hear you so much, and I hear (laughs) how you can because I've 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 lived it. I feel the same thing. Uh, at At the same time, you know. Um, especially when you're doing interviews, it's a yes. difficult it's a difficult line to walk because when you're a, you're a performer, I mean, you are an artist, you are a performer, and you're a good performer. So, um, but when you're doing an interview, the interview should be about the subject, not about you necessarily. Yes. And uh, <laughs> you know, I was looking. Hopefully, at, it is. I, I, well, I, I you know, I was researching you and going back to some of your old Masanang kook you know some of the shows you've done and you're interviewing yeah. like air phone or something you know and i look at the comments and half the comments are about you you know i really like this guy i like the interviewer i like his hat i like this you know and i'm thinking well the, the only problem with this is this is supposed to be about the other guy that you know <laughs> so ha, that is my weakness well i mean how have you tried to walk that line over the years i tell you yes um I mean, you have to look at, for instance, other interviews like Shahram Akasha and his interview, uh, or even Abby. Uh, they're different styles. The thing is, when I look at the uncut version of my interview, then you see <laughs> different words. I'm talking and talking and talking and talking and they're talking. 
I cut off everything, and it's only a few words from me. Mm. How did it go? This isn't the word you see on the, on the screen, but it's really much more. I build them up. I actually even correct their lines. Many times they're, they're dropping lots of English words which only belongs to a LA lifestyle. Many times they're dropping words which belongs to a Swedish lifestyle. They're dropping words that belongs to Kabul. I keep creating a unified language, unified expression and emotion. And also what I do, which I think I'm very good at, is it make them honest. I make them who they are, in my opinion, and I think they actually agree on that most of the time. And also when I ask them to do a live performance, we work on that. Many of these artists don't have bands. We actually, with the help of studios, we bring a band together, mm -hmm. write down mm -hmm. the notes. <laughs> you know, we actually spend money to make them like that, and they sing it as if the same night they created that song. Mm. Because I just quickly say that Iranian music is from a third of country. So we are like a hurt world, hurt people. But what I try to do is to be uh, dedicated to the way of BBC that started in 1943. They sent a person to Iran villages and Iran streets with a gramophone to record pure songs from the streets, from the cabarets, from performances, and brought it as an archive which we have. So I'm continuing that line of being, bringing the honesty, helping the music. We are like the Ministry of Culture, in my opinion. So that person, although maybe they interview, they look at me, but that interview, that work program is about that person very much. Mm -hmm. But people maybe don't realize it because it's about the night that that person bought that song or made it, that joy. You know, doing it live is very rare. They're all done live. And they even have a chance to go and correct their voice later. We even make that provide for them. Beatles went to BBC and played live. I'm, I'm trying to be the... I want Iranians to have exactly the same facility. When did that... I was going to ask you about that because you, you... you And I know I can't keep you here forever. You've been so generous with your time. I've just got a couple more no, questions I, I love I'll it. ask you, you about music. Um you know, it's clear. I mean, we talk about Abby and Airphone and some of the big names that you've interviewed, but um, it is clear that over the years, you've you, it's been important to you to support Persian artists and celebrate the young, the new ones, the young ones, yeah. to, to unearth these people, to to kind of um, yes, uh, take the veil off. Uh, when when did you make it? When did you make it your mission to want to promote young Iranian musicians and artists? When did that mm -hmm. click in you? Yeah, that started in my room in Tehran, when I played the sitar, and I played it for Jaul Zulfun, the master, and he said, I like it. But nobody else heard that song, only him. So I always wanted to, that boy or a girl in the bedroom, lonely, doing something amazing, but they, there's no, they don't even know how to give it to TVs or the radios. How would I do that? I never knew, even now I cannot help them. They said, how can we send us? I don't know, don't ask me. Mm. So that started then. And from the day one, when I received a letter from Mashhad from a girl, you know, after I gave an interview about my album back in 1989, uh, two weeks later, a girl sent me a letter talking about her heart, about her, uh, that she liked my music. And it's, oh my God, I have a mission. And from that day, I didn't have a chance to go to there, but by 1995, when I became a producer, they gave me the chance. Everywhere I traveled, I went to the homes of people. 
Hmm. And so, oh my God, you play the sitar in a funny way. Let's hit record that. You, you, you express loving someone in a way I've never heard before. And it's so simple way. Let's hear that. And then by 1996, 7, um, I started this show called um, which was the first live request song connecting to Iran on any outside broadcasters, as I know, because before you would record them, maybe, but maybe VOA did that, I don't know. But from 1996 up to now, I bring the most unknown people mm-hmm. in a way that mm-hmm. audience get hurt. They're upset that this person has only even one song, doesn't even have a nice voice. Why are you having it? I say it's not about voice anymore. It's about the, how you pronounce. It's about how you play that song. It's about how you create an emotion. So I, I, because you see our culture is being hurt, we don't have galleries or something, freedom, I mean, free galleries in Iran. Yes. I try to uh, push that edge of culture that is needed and necessary for any, any society. Yes. Yes. Try to push it by bringing these people with me and say, no, let's push. So since that day and all the underground music from uh, 1998 to now, I gave them value. I brought them even Hitchcock's album. I remember he was in the yes. car going to his studio to record them. He was generous enough to introduce Jangela Osborne live on my program on the radio. No, you're the At guy. The you're you're the guy who's been the. I mean, as I said in the introduction, it's been it's been you. You've been the through line who has been so and so consistently so. But it, but yes. it, it actually. So I have to use this opportunity to ask you this question because it's something that we've talked about a bit about on the show. And there's no, this is is asking you this with the knowledge that you know and I know and most of the audience knows that a lot of the dysfunction that came into the Persian music industry, if you could even call it that, in Iran was because of things freezing after 1978 you know the, the the heartbreaking stories of people like Faramaz Aslani who's just getting his career going and then has to go in the wilderness for two decades you know because there's no music played there etc we all know that part but in the diaspora uh, as someone who is clearly a supporter of alternative and underground Persian music and culture as you are let me ask you a question that I grapple with and, and get your perspective why is this is a value judgment, but let me have it. Yeah. Why is so much of the Iranian music, pop music, that has been made outside of Iran over the last three decades or so, so unimaginative, so cookie cutter? A lot of it sounds like it's it's all been made in the same L.A. factory room. Why is that? Okay, I tell you. First of all, after the revolution, there was an explosion, a beautiful explosion of Persian music only after a few years, because it was all about um, revolutionary music, which was made properly by the orchestras. But then by the late or mid 1980s, it was this bonfire of beautiful Persian music, which was based on the 1970s Persian music, where groups like Shada or Chawash Music Company, let's say, brought, uh, with the help of Farah Pahlavi, brought instruments from folk music into Persian music. So I was ex- and that reinvented itself in the most beautiful way. But then it was destroyed by Sufism. Even a Qajar dance song from a harem was called the Sufi music because it wanted to survive. So it was, it was bad for the pop music, but fantastic for the Persian music. Hmm. 
and they tried to survive. Shahram Naziri was creating songs in the underground. In Persian traditional music was underground in 1980s. Only it resurfaced in nine, uh, late 1980s and 1990s. So that's one thing. So we're talking about that. And pop was, had a comeback in 1999, I think, with the help of Khatami, who opened up. Right. They get permission from us. So we put that on site. I think we had the most glorious time of pop music in 1980s in LA. I'm a massive fan. What happened was before that, we would have Greek music, Spanish music. We had all the structure of a European music, pop songs, in a, in a nice way, in a fantastic way. But what happened in, in LA because of revolution and, and the immigration, Iranian music became teenage and Persian. For the first time, Tombak and Tar became part of the music. And you have to remember, still was that joy, that passion of 1970s Iran, okay. still there in 1980s. People would spend money with the bands, big bands, Haydas, bands, amazing, Evis, Darish, anybody, Shahram, Shah Paresh, Shohre, Andy and Kurs, the fantastic pop music pieces. And then it was pure. It was opposite to 1970s. 1970s, you would say something very simple in a very difficult way because of the uh, Savak time, because of the uh, security in Iran and the political situation, nobody was allowed to talk. So they have something very simple like love in a very complicated words in pop music. But then it sort of broke through. Now it was teenagers song, like 1960s in, in West, 1950s. So it was fantastic. Topolirism is, is an amazing song. Thank God that was invented. And then Iranian music, pop music was, was fantastic. It was the best time, up to early 90s. And then they had the explosion of wealth uh, when the CD came and when the concerts in Dubai opened up. Uh, Iranian music in LA become again fantastic because there was an internet. So people from Iran would send uh, lyrics before, a decade before, Singers were proud that they were doing their own lyrics, their own music, their own composition, which was shit. But now in, in early 2000, we have lyrics from Iran, from Maryam Haydazadeh, the, the beautiful girl with amazing vision of a girl talking about love. And we had fantastic composers composing. And suddenly, and also with the worth of the concerts and people buying tickets, uh, the singers from LA went and met their, their audience. And that was a beautiful explosion. Uh, Iranian music, pop music in early 2000s is, is one of the, again, it had a fantastic jump. And then the reason that it keeps on repeating itself is what I just said earlier. When you're a third apart country, you don't, you know, we are not like Americans. We are not even like Chinese. We are not even like Indians or Pakistanis or even Afghans. We, we are not in our own country. We have the economy of 3,000 people want to satisfy 80 million people. That's something that Mansur said, and I respect it. So when you make your song, you don't have the money to make it. At the end, you end up just doing synthesizers because, of the, because people don't buy it. People blame singers. People have to blame themselves. We don't have the cup. Even right now, nobody in Iran, even if there's an open up to buy songs, they will never buy it. They rather copy it. They think that it's the right to have something for free. So it's a mixture of economy, political situation and geography that's a um that, that was an amazing history lesson i that's the the best 
most <laughs> most convincing and most uh, passionate defense of uh, of the kind of <laughs> pop music that was coming out of LA in the 1980s that I've ever ever heard and and I really appreciate yes. it. I am going to diverge with you uh, when it comes to the 90s pop music yes. and even even through to today I I'm not as enamored of it as I mean seemingly you you don't think that there's ever been a a bad period of of, of Persian no, no, pop music but is very bad. Yeah, oh, okay. You agree? Said, All right. Because, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, they were they were doing their own songs and they wanted to they, they wanted to fake it again. Right. You know, the right. Iranians like me. I don't have money, but I have a credit card, so I buy something that I, that my class of society cannot buy. I cannot buy a removal luggage. I cannot buy Boris Bijan T-shirts. I cannot buy Carol Christian Paul's boots. Right. And I cannot buy this dog from 4,000 years ago by the Caspian Sea. But I do that. And um, so we fake it. So they start faking it. They're fantastic, this music, that music. So they, they try to survive and I respect them. And I think in, that, in those days, we have some really good songs. And, uh, but again, we, we are, because we are not in our own country, right. I will not blame any singers, I blame people. <laughs> and as somebody but, who's uh, as somebody who's into the alternative scene as much as you are, where are yes. the? I mean, we can point at some people today for sure who are doing yes. really interesting things in, in Persian Iranian music. But where was the David Bowie of Iranian music in the 1990s? I mean, where was the where was the Nine Inch oh, Nails? As I said, when you're not in your own country, you're in a right. you're in a host country. You have to try to survive, try to make business. With the lack of culture, which I'm trying to bring, you know, if you know who you are, not to be proud, but you build up your personality of the goodness of your personality. Like a Jewish person or a Zoroastrian person or even a Muslim person who believes, know they have this structure of morality and this and that. Iranians have their own, which is very modern, actually, can represent itself, translate itself, because we have money from 2000 years ago who taught us that we are adapting. We have like rebelliousness of Mazdaq, who said that uh, just don't accept anything becomes a norm. Just find what is correct and do that. So yeah, but that society doesn't have that. It comes from a, a culture which has been hurt and has lost its identity at the same time in a foreign country. So just try to survive. I'm surprised they even sing in Persian. They shouldn't have. But we, we hear a lot of English going on. We hear wrong Persian language. For instance, in Entekhab Manwood is Persian translation of an English line. Right. And because of the 1990 music, some of our language has become translated version of Persian, which has hurt our language. It's not about losing purity. It's, it's also losing your philosophy because they're, they're just redigesting digesting um, uh, uh, lack of uh, knowledge of Persian language. I got it. It is such a, a pleasure to talk to you. Let me, a, a final question to you, or a final little strand sure. here, which is that, um, and I mean, I could talk to you for days. We're going to have to do this again. You know, you're stuck now. Sure. Now that you've started I'm these English that. interviews, uh, instead of in Persian or Farsi, as I would say, and get you angry. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you talk about unity. Um, yes. You know, uh, this is a question. I mean, I feel bad that I have to. I always feel obligated to ask this, but I mean, I, I've asked it of someone like Faradad Faradzad, who used to be at BBC, or or um, or uh, Pune Kodusi. You know, um, 
the BBC, even working at the BBC, maybe less so for you because you're more in the cultural area. I don't know. Yes, but it's become controversial because everything in our community and our diaspora is bifurcated, and there's everything's there's there's people on different sides of everything yelling at each other. Um, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with the the fact that just putting you on this little show of ours, I I can guarantee you that somebody's going to write to us and say, you know, oh, Besad Boulours is with the regime because he, he's, you know, because yes. he works at BBC. I mean, how? What is your philosophy on all of that as somebody who's been at that institution for over three decades? BBC Persian, I should so, say. Uh, the BBC is uh, institution that actually other institutions come to learn from. I remember back in 1990s, uh, NHK Japan wanted to open a Persian language radio and they came and learned about this. BBC News has one of the best um, unbiased way of uh, broadcasting. Because of that, sometimes when you're angry about something, you see, don't see that anger. Because of that, you think that, oh, there's something. And sometimes you pro something, you don't hear that proness. Right. Um, so uh, our society is not, in the, especially in the last 30 years, our society doesn't read books. We don't know about our recent history. We don't know how Qajar changed to Pahlavi, Pahlavi changed to modern Iran, how the revolution came, what happened during 1970s, 60s and 1950s, how Sabak started, how Shah was terrored and uh, where were the, uh, the, the mass executions of the 1980s? People have, they just don't read. And they just want to listen to what you say. And based on what you say, they decide. I've seen that amazingly, in, in, especially in the new layer of society. We are the people who don't know the facts. We hear what we want to hear. We want to just, just to empty ourselves. In Instagram, which to me is a massive university of uh, uh, anthropology, <laughs> uh, these kids come and they don't want to be bothered to go and learn. For instance, they say, um, how old are you? You know, I've written how old I am, 56, on top of my Instagram for the last five years from whenever it started. They don't bother. And I tell them, go and read this there. And they get hurt. Say, oh, who do you think you are? For them, hearing what other people say is a fact. Mm. So if on the Instagram someone just writes, onion is good for your prostate, it's good for your hair, it's good for your vision, it's good for your uh, bum, it's good for your uh, mother and father, they believe that and they spread it around. It's enough because it's about the world that is desperate to, to know things but cannot be bothered to right. work for it. Right. So based on that society, Dajan Napoleon series is a documentary. It's not a joke. Based on that, facts about 19th century Iran and the role of Britain is a fact of 21st century. At the same time, they're so uh, illiterate in a way that they don't realize what happened with Russia and Iran. None of them recognize that the main reason that Iran was completely destroyed financially and mentally and lost parts of Iran is because of Russians' attacks. They never talk about it. They said Qajar's lost this part of Iran. And they don't realize that the Russians actually paid some of the clerics to go and talk about British people. 
They, they don't know any part of this. They just care about what is interest, what, what makes them empty their, you know, their heart. In. So the facts are amazing. People, I, I hope they read. And when you know more, you cannot comment as easy as they do right now. And I hope that one day my people, not one day, I try to push them to read and learn. Don't just hear what other people say and accept it as a fact. Because Iranians are very honest. And they think that anything that comes is an honest information. But they are bullshit. You see, when the society loses its identity, loses its knowledge, becomes so fake and and accepting so much of the surface that a, a film becomes a reality. So you're saying the the information that you're a spy of the regime is is fake? Absolutely, it's <laughs> fake. I mean, you show me. I mean, how can I be? A, you know, the funny thing is, I'm also a spy and also doing this. There's so many things. Like because there was an article about us written by the regime back in 2000. Not only do we rape each other and have children, we are from Mossad. At the right. same time, working for the British intelligence. At the same time, we are Baha'is, you know, and homosexuals. <laughs> it's really funny because yeah. you cannot be a homosexual and do this and that. I mean, but for them, it's all these things. You must be. That's who you are. Do you take it personally? Do you do you have trouble with it when the people say these kind of things? Yeah, uh, the fr back in uh, when the things opened up in early two thousands because there was internet. For instance, I would say things on the program, and they were directly repeating my lines, taken out of context in Etalot. And at the, in, in 1990s and 2000, I was a lot more liberated than I am. And I always thank BBC to give me the opportunity. I had songs with swear words in it. I would talk to people about everything they wanted to talk, not because we just wanted to be interesting, because that was the moment they were breaking the boundaries, because the regime at the time, at, at this time, you know, I wanted to cut away inside from outside and that only from Biruni. And based on that, you rule people, you, you control the sexuality. So for me, it was an explosion of being honest about sexuality, show what's happening under the layer of society. So all of that was happening and I would say things so they would put it up, take it out of context and print it. Right. And I was so scared. I was so hurt. I remember I went home and closed the doors and didn't go to BBC because I thought they would sack me. But Interesting enough, they were extremely helpful. They were really uh, understanding and they were much more uh, experienced than I am. So at the beginning, it was really hurtful, scary. But now it just comes and goes. There's on Wikipedia, there are different ones. There's about me doing so many things and people don't take me seriously. So I'm always upset. Um, now I'm different. You know, I'm 56. I'm much more mature and have confidence. And um, I've gone through so many things because if you get knifed once or twice, you get scared, you get yeah. hurt. But then gradually you become brave and you hurt the other person. Yeah. So it's that. And What's the craziest thing they've said about you? Maybe the craziest thing somebody told me directly was in Harrods, um, which I never forget. There was a family who were like covered and they saw me in Harrods. I said, let's take a picture. But as if like, like you're like an animal from a from circus. So let's right, I said, I was thinking, shit, like, look, you took a picture of this idiot. And I said, okay, thank you. I said, you know why we, do, we took a picture of you? I said, why? why? I said, because you look You're such a mishmash of things. You're such a, I don't know how, how you translate, and that was so funny, the way they see me. And that hurt me as well. But then I realized that's how people see me. And because Iranians are not me and you. 
there are still some people who voted positively. They are happy with the regime. They, are, they actually have benefited from Iran's government, and they are part of Iran. We are part of Iran. Right. We are living all together with, with different time zones, with different realities, uh, and it's getting more and more separated. Uh, but that's the reality of my country. I went to Sweden. I just say that the last word. I, I sat down with an Iranian taxi driver, and we talking something. I said my my son goes to the same school that the prime minister's boy goes, and I suddenly realized, oh my God, uh, countries in the West they're so unified in their culture, and the spread of wealth, and the opportunity. That this taxi driver, who was a revolutionary apparently, he was a nice guy. He was maybe a architect. Mm. Has the same opportunity. His son has the same opportunity as someone in the government, and that's something I haven't seen in my country for decades and decades and decades. And we did the revolution because of that to break that. But hopefully, sometime in the future, when we learn, read more books, become more Iranian of the 21st century. Find out who we are again and see how beautiful can we be, rather than be the mishmash of ajab bajab other people. <laughs> then that may be happen. Where where do you think you're? I mean, let let's say you're halfway through your your journey. You're in your your fifties. What what do you think your next act is going to be? Where what do you want to explore next? Do you think you'll be at the BBC for another thirty years? Uh, no. Uh, um, not that I want to not to be there, but I will be maybe left with not much choice because I have to grow. And um, BBC is a fantastic ground to let you be who you are, but that's not enough. I have to just move. Uh, I'm like an octopus. Uh, I've grown other hands. And, and you know that if mammals die, the octopuses will take over the world. And some of them can fly by creating methane uh, gas in their head so they can float. So I've I, I become an octopus. And um, what I see in the next 30 years, because I think I die at the age of 85, uh, is um, totally dedicated to recreating Iranian identity in a pretty way, to um, cut away and clear off nationalism, racism out of it, and all the purity and niceness of it, reinvent it, spread it back again to the society, and then fake my own death to see how people think about me. Mm. And then uh, you find me in a, I don't know, in some house somewhere in an island in Mediterranean, died for 20 years and nobody even found me. <laughs> so that's my future. But I'm totally dedicated. I hope that I can get the finance that I need so I don't have to work anywhere, but work dedicated only to our culture to recreate and reinvent it. And that's what I want to do. Uh, otherwise, because I need the money to do that, I still have to work. So it could be BBC or somewhere else. And um, based on f uh, better money and also better value that they give me, not only money, because all my life I just spend rather than earn. So it's about how much they value you. Listen, if you're gonna, if you know that you're gonna um, live until eighty-five, only eighty-five, then yes. I, I guess you have to fake your death at, at age 80, eighty-four, or are you faking the death at eighty-five? And we don't know how long. No, I'm going to fake my uh, death around eighty-three. And I've written, I've written four stories, which is in my. I'm going to publish them in Bezard Graph. That um, it's it, how it's going to be. How I'm going to actually is quite a interesting way of faking my death because they're going to bury me in London 
in an ancient style, which I'm going to be covered with the red okra earth, and we'll be put in a vase like the ancient Persians. And but then uh, it's quite interesting. But I've, I've I already have uh, contacted a Polish hyperrealist statue maker. I've already started it. Wait, I this the mechanics of this are tripping me up. So if they bury you, how are you going to escape and be on ah, an island? That's it. <laughs> because I've thought about it. <laughs> you clearly have. Although I think eighty three is too soon. I think. I mean, you know, shoot for at least ninety three or something. No, you want to no, be. No, I think. No, you know, once I do the test that they do, they ask you all these silly questions about how many times you masturbate or how many times you did it, drink, walk, da 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 da, uh-huh. and then and it came out as you. You would you would die at age of eighty five. It was so funny. And you took that to the bank to get kabul kardi, huh? That's it. You're like the, you're like the people on Instagram who believe that you're you know are asking you your age. You're willing to believe that? Come on, I think I think we should make it ninety five and fake the death at ninety three. It'll be that much more dramatic as a ninety three year old. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that would be interesting, and because I have to somehow make money in that period of time. But I, but, but I started the fake of it, and it's going to be very interesting. Uh, it, it's already interesting. It, it's not going. It's not <laughs> yeah. going to be interesting. It's already interesting. Vasab Bulur, uh, I love you. I thank you so much for taking the time, and I can't wait to do it in person, brother. Yeah, me too. I hope I come to Toronto. Uh, I had this plan of coming and doing something about Toronto. Which you are from there, yeah? Aren't yes. you? You're there, yeah? I'm here right now. And definitely yeah. we meet up. We want to hang out and speak English. You're going to improve my English. And we're going to talk and we're going to walk. Thank you so much for giving me the, uh, this opportunity and making me rock with a cue. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Uh, can we say Chod Office or do I say something else? I say Durud. I say no, Sepos. No, say Chod Office, but I say Bedrud. Aha, uh-huh, Bedrud. Since, since 1981, I say Bedrud. See you, Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Vassad Boulour, an award-winning artist, fashion designer, radio personality, TV presenter, senior producer. He can currently be found at BBC Persian Television. We reached Vassad Boulour in London, England today. Microphone's back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, the fabulous Keon. Bessad Balur has exited <laughs> the uh, digital building. Um, that was fun. Oh, big time. Yes. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. What a personality. Oh. He's got, he's definitely, uh, I think I said idiosyncratic was the word I used yeah, earlier yes, in the yes, show yes, before yes. I interviewed him, and uh, that was borne out. He's, he's a unique dude. Oh, yeah. He's got his own way of doing things. Actually, I'm fascinated by his explanation about the, I mean, the short history of music after revolution. Yeah. I'm fascinated. What was? What did you find fascinating about that? The the thing that he said, I think it's really true that Persian traditional music was kind of underground music before revolution. Like Shahraman Azari played kind of underground music, and after revolution, it. To that is interesting. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. really interesting. Yeah, although I felt like he didn't want to say 
maybe it's because of his position. He didn't want to say he didn't want to throw throw anybody under the bus. Yes, yes. He wasn't going to go negative on any. <laughs> yeah. Even when I was, eh, you yeah, really like that, that LA <laughs> kind of. You know, he was like, oh no, some very good music is being made. Yeah, he All said, right. thank God for Topolieri's. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's such an alternative dude. You kind of go, is he really into? All of this music, but yeah. Yeah, Thank you to Kathy Kavandi and Kathy Kavandi Immigration Services. Kathy is a certified immigration consultant and the CEO of her company, and she's very well reviewed as a resource for those wanting to come to Canada with offices in Toronto and Tehran. Kathy uh, is an immigrant from Iran herself and learned the ropes of the process of coming to Canada and has a tremendous knowledge in immigration procedures and legislation. Her company acts as the client's advocate uh, before the courts, government officials, IRB, IRCC offices she makes herself and her team available throughout the whole process and of course she does this in persian and, and english if you want to come to canada if you're involved in any part of the immigration process katikavandi.ca katikavandi.ca hey it's monday what does that mean well, i'll tell you what it means <laughs> it's time for letters of the week I gave up halfway. I'm like, I'm tired, man. <laughs> hey, the letters of the week now appear on our website. That's right. Only the only the letter that gets crowned letter mm -hmm. of the week uh, ends up at rookmedia.com. Well, you can also become a patron over our program. What do you got for us, Keon? Okay, so last week on episode 127, we had two rising star Persian percussionists on the show, Hamta Baghi and Nasri Nahmani. So we have a Ali Reza Baghi Najad wrote to us saying, Hamta is one of the most popular and perfect percussionists. Okay. Hamta being the Iranian Indian daf player. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. And then we have Maral Qasimi wrote Hamta. Maral. Maral. Maral Qasimi. <laughs> All right, Shaya, I get it. Your Persian's perfect. <laughs> she wrote Hamta, one of the most unique musicians and the pride of Iran. Do you guys know what, uh, Kian, do you know what Reina thought of her? <laughs> Did Reina like, like her? I can't pronounce words properly in Persian or, or English, English yeah. really. And you're trying to be an advocate for per preserving Persian language yeah. and uh. culture. Yeah. <laughs> How was the weekend with Reina? Um, who? Oh, Rana Mansour? Yeah, Reina. <laughs> all of a sudden, she sounds like me. What's going on? Yeah, we all sound like you. <laughs> and then we have Zoya Katuli wrote, Love these ladies. Such talented girls. Thanks, Gian and Rook team. By the way, I love It's All Persian to Us. There are lots of things we don't know about our own motherland. Very informative. I love your team and always looking forward to the next episode. God bless you guys. Oh, it's very sweet. That's that's got letter of the week potential. I don't it know does. what you've. It does. It uh, does. Yeah, but um, you know, it's mm -hmm. probably second place. Let's say. Okay. And then we have Ozzy Karami wrote, "Great program as usual. I'm thankful for the delivery of Isal Persian to us at the beginning. It's my favorite part. All right. Thank you. Thursdays. Ozzie. Tune in Thursdays for It's All Persian to Us. Thanks, Ozzy. 
And then as well, last week on episode 126, we had Farhad Kashani on the show, and he's the former CEO and popular social media commentator who's made basically a life mission to travel to every single United Nations recognized country in the world, all 200 of them. So he, he has a lot of fans. My God, like I, sure does. I, I didn't yeah. know him until uh, he came on the show, but uh, apparently he's quite well known. We have Ali Nadiri wrote, I'm glad to find such a great channel. Hope to hear more from you. Mm-hmm. And then we have. I a had said nothing about Fahar Kashani. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I'll you for including that letter. Funny. He has so many fans, people were gushing about so him. Many. Let me read this letter. Uh, <laughs> nice to find Rook. <laughs> I enjoyed the interview with Reina. <laughs> actually, funny enough, the next letter is actually criti- criti- criticizing Fahar. <laughs> but then it gets better, I Do, swear. All right, all right. And then we have Sherveen Rahimi wrote One of the problems with your podcast is, is that most of your featured guests aren't as popular and successful as you claim they are. <laughs> Jud- oh my God. <laughs> Wait, it gets better. Judging people... Self-hating Persians. <laughs> I love it. Judging people by their number of followers on social media is not accurate at all, hmm. as there are lots of bots that will give you these numbers. That's true. I understand many successful Iranians in the diaspora may not want to come on your show, and you need to find people who are willing to. But in my opinion, you should change the criteria you select guests from if you want to be on the right track. Mm. <laughs> Where do I start? <laughs> First of all, I don't think we've had uh, any, many no's from successful Iranians mm-hmm. in the diaspora. Um, we, our success rate is pretty high in terms of people we ask to come on the program. Right. Uh, we try and make it a diverse group of people. I, I mean, it's totally true that you can't judge people from social media no, numbers, but that don't. isn't our only no. only criteria. And I mean, we have all kinds of people on who don't have a, a lot of... But I mean, Farhad Kashani does, if this is inspired by him, mm-hmm. uh, he has a lot of followers on social media. And it's totally accurate because we got... Uh, tons of letters That's about right. him. Yeah, he's yeah. the only Iranian on the, that club. What does it call? The uh, Traveler's the, Century Club. So yeah, yeah, yeah. right. You know, some people think if it's not Ebby, uh, yeah, or uh, there's a certain group of people that has to be yeah. who are yeah. successful. Mm. But anyway, we're trying. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of ways of trying to keep this as diverse as possible so we look at where they are geographically we don't want everybody to be from london or everybody to be from la or we have age gender geography we think of you know so um over time we'll we'll get as many folks as we are as we can but but they can't all be maz jabrani and Mm. and ebby that's right but um yeah yeah so anyway, uh, moving on, we have Amir Hussein, uh, and might I add, he wrote in uh, Persian, like in the Persian language, and I uh, translated it. That's how good my reading is. Yes, he says, "Vay khoda, chagad man kashani All right. Meaning, like, God, how much do I love uh, Mr. Kashani? Yeah, we got a whole bunch of letters about how much they love uh, yeah. Farah Kashani. We're 15 minutes into the letter <laughs> segment, and this is the first time you've read one. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'll go and go quicker. Um, we have after- the problem with your podcast is you brought on Farhad Kashani. Uh, that's the end of the letters. What, uh, Keon? What? Listen, a lot of people send love, but it's not worthy of a letter. Right, you know, it's right. like I no, love it was a him. Good letter. It was good I, to and read I'm not going to read it out no, on absolutely. here. Like I love him. You're totally right. I love him so much. He's yeah. great. Like I'm not going to read those. No. You know. Thank you. Hub. And then we have a Aftohe wrote. He is one of the countless heroes that we amazing Iranian people traded for a ghost. 
Mm. Who's the ghost? Like, as in Islamic Republic, oh, okay. I guess. Like, it's a ghost. You know, as in, like, mm. we have nobody. Like, ah, it's a right. ghost. I think. Right. Maybe. Good. Sure. Thank yeah. you, Aftahir. And then we have Puya Afshin wrote, "I don't quite understand why he said Iranians are not adventurous in general." <laughs> <laughs> Another critical. Uh, <laughs> okay, let me finish. Angry letters. <laughs> wait, wait, I can't wait to yeah. hear what this person is saying. <laughs> let me finish it. He has been in Iran and should have known that Iranian passports are only good for visiting a handful of countries. That's why Iranians either go to Turkey or Dubai. As well, the currency of Iran is at an all-time low. Also, he talked about the Omidvar uh, brothers during the Shah's time. That means if the situation was right for the people of Iran, they could be adventurous too. I found this comment to be very superficial, and it spoiled the rest of the interview. All right. Okay. Thank you, Puri. Yeah, he has a point there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Farah Koshani, we got so many great letters. Let me read the next one. How dare you bring this man on? This 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 next one is from Fereshte, uh, who says the biggest mistake you've made on your show is to. <laughs> Okay, it's all uphill from here, I, I swear. <laughs> okay, that was like two... People, I, I, people love... You know, I had like family members right. write to me. I, this guy was such a revelation. They loved Farah Gushy. Don't let two letters spoil it. That's two letters That's out of like, three. I swear, 50 comments of like, I love him. Hard, right, you hard, decided hard. to lead with those, those two. <laughs> no, I try to mix two it up, you know? Yeah, okay. But anyway, yeah. and then we have Mila Omrani <laughs> wrote, Farhad Kashani is a great oh, mentor. Thank God. Thanks, God. Rook yeah, Media. Right. <laughs> and then we have... Uh, username photo foodography wrote i've been a fan of farhad kashani since i was a teenager reading his articles in machine magazine mm. still watching his videos and lives on instagram thanks for sharing with us love that that's see, great see see what i mean it yeah. gets good mm-hmm. uh, and then we it have good. <laughs> <laughs> we have username uh poo poo <laughs> Who like. last name Ak? Uh-huh. Uh, again, this gentleman wrote in the Persian language, and I translated, saying, "Ali Bud, merci. Farhad Kashani, vagan tasir guzare. Tasir guzare. That means like impressive. so. He's very impressive, right? Yeah. Okay. See, it's not all negative. <laughs> and then we have Hamid Bosolishe. He wrote, you have a nice, charming voice. That's Eugene. Oh. You said Farhad John in the middle of English speaking, which was really nice. Mm. Oh, this guy's got the... <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, on that note. Hamid John. Yes. Mm-hmm. It is time for the letter of the week. Oh. So we have a Doran Meratian wrote, mm. oh my God. Gian, you threw me into my teenage years. I have never seen his face until now. I always read his reports in the car magazine. He explained always in such great detail. Farhad, thanks for all the beautiful efforts. Oh, that's nice. All right. Dorone. Doran Meration. Doran Meration. You see that? Farhad has some big fans. He sure does. Since teenage years. That's right. That's right. Uh, thank you, Keon, for your efforts. Uh, thank you, Captain Reza and Groovy Shia. This is full time for Rook for today. Remember to find anything uh, about Rook, to find our previous episodes, the list of all of our guests, and all of our outtakes and Rook funnies that we put on Instagram. Go to rookmedia.com. 
brookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together each week. Producer Susan Ponce of the Artist, the fabulous Keon, Thoughtful Degin, Savvy Rohan, Super Patty Saw, Sponsorship Sean, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and Ahoy Merdad. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms if you've not done so already. It is free. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And in the meantime, Mizunbashi. Bashi.